We're up to mitzvah number 42, the mitzvah of the Jewish slave. Now, before we begin, I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer or a, um, a warning, I would say, that uh, we all realize that this is, this whole subject is a minefield and it's one that we have to approach quite gingerly. And therefore, before we talk about the meat and potatoes of the subject, I want to give a few introductions to make the subject a little bit more palatable to modern sensibilities. And I think a good way to do that is to clear away a little bit of the misconceptions because, you know, we say the word slavery and the images and the understanding that it conjures is very different than what the Torah describes. And therefore, I want to give a little bit of a basic overview of the, of the concept or, or of Torah servitude, maybe is a better word, or not enslavement, but maybe servitude, uh, a Jewish servant or non-Jewish servant, to be able to understand them in a more, you know, in a way that makes sense or that resonates with uh, with us today. And I had a friend who said to me, Rabbi, I'd be very happy if the Torah has an emancipation proclamation, the Torah outright bans the whole concept of slavery, there's no slavery, there's no servants, you have to wash the floors yourself, you can't even outsource that. He'd be very happy with that. And I think that's a, that's a reasonable sentiment, certainly in modern times, and certainly using our definition of slavery. So I think that raises important questions. You know, is the Torah, what it describes, is it moral? Is it, does it align with what we understand today? And I believe that it very much does. And not only do I say it's not immoral, I think it's exceedingly moral, as we shall see. So it's important to distinguish when we talk about the concept of slavery or servitude in in the Torah, there's several different kinds, and we'll talk about them as we progress through the mitzvos. There is a Jewish servant, there is a female Jewish servant, there is a non-Jewish servant. And even within the non-Jewish servant, there's various categories. There's a non-Jewish servant that doesn't want to become Jewish, and then there's a non-Jewish servant that does want to become Jewish, does want to convert. Part of the process of owning a non-Jewish servant or slave is that they, in fact, become Jewish. And part of the indoctrination process, part of the inauguration of someone becoming a non-Jewish servant is that they actually convert and they get circumcised and they go to the mikvah and they become and they have to keep Shabbos. That they're fully, almost fully Jewish. Talmud says that they're obligated in mitzvahs. Every mitzvah that a Jewish woman is obligated in, they're obligated, which means mitzvahs that are not time-bound, they're obligated in. So, for example... We saw previously how if you want to have the Pesach sacrifice, you have to be circumcised. Not only that, your slaves have to be circumcised. Now, if I have a non-Jewish slave, they don't need to be circumcised. Why do they need to be circumcised for me to be able to eat the Torah Pesach, the Pesach offering? And the answer is because they are part of your family and they are Jewish and therefore if they're not circumcised, then you yourself, because you're the master – you're responsible for that. So that's an important basic overview. And it's important to stress that a Jewish servant is not someone who is permanently in servitude, but someone who is only temporarily in servitude. And even that breaks down into two different categories. And I know we're going through this quickly, but we'll go through a little bit more, a little bit more uh, in depth as we proceed. Even within the category of a Jewish servant, there's someone who was sold 
to pay for his crimes. You have a criminal steals money, doesn't have money to pay. That person will be sold to pay for their crimes. And they have someone who voluntarily opts to sell themselves. And therefore, there are two different categories. And there's at least five distinctions between these two categories. The Jewish servant who is sold because of his crimes, to pay for his crimes, sold by the court, and the Jewish servant who sells himself voluntarily. And I think a good way to understand this, I think actually the correct way to understand this, is that this is the Jewish way of rehabilitation of criminals. Now, you don't need to be a great statistician, and you don't need to be a student of law to understand that the way we do justice and the way we treat criminals here is actually the opposite of rehabilitory. The rates of recidivism of criminals is shockingly and staggeringly high. So our the way we do it is someone is a criminal, commits a crime. We put them in a cell like a dog, like a kennel surrounded by the worst people in the world to train him to be a better and more ardent criminal. That's what we do in America. What do we do in Torah? You take someone as a criminal and you bring him, not as a slave, yes, for a certain amount of time, with a family. They're not living together with criminals. They're surrounded by the best people in the world, not the worst people, the best people in the world. And they they join the, the family and they are given all the rights in the world. And yes, they need to work, but even the work is done in a dignified, respectable manner. And after six years, they have adopted the behaviors and the characteristics of that family. And now they're ready to rejoin society as an individual. In fact, the Torah tells us how these people would frequently want to stay with the family. Because if you're a slave and you get the opportunity to leave, of course you want to leave. That's how we understand it. Here, they became part of the family. They don't want to leave. And the Torah says, no, 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 you're supposed to leave. But if you insist on staying, then you get pierced in the ear. That's the law, you get pierced in the ear, and you stay there forever, but really it's only until Yovel, which is the 50-year Jubilee cycle. Now, to the way the Talmud encapsulates this idea is as follows. This is the book of Kedushim, page 22a. It quotes a verse. The verse says that this slave, this Jewish slave, this Jewish servant, it's good for him to be with you. It's good for him to be with you. What does that mean it's good for him to be with you? He's with you. He's with you when you eat. He's with you when you drink. He's part of the family. And not only that, you have to make sure that you treat him well. So if you eat the best kind of bread, you can't have give him the the mediocre stuff, you have to give them the same kind of bread that you have. It's it's improper. It's a, it's a prohibition for you to have the old wine, the the better wine, and for him to have the new wine, the, the worse wine. It's improper for you to sleep on comfortable beds and make him sleep on the straw, on the hay. From here, our sages say, this is going to quote from the Talmud. This is not modern apologetics after 1863. Says, says the Talmud, from here we learn... Whoever acquires a servant acquires a master. When you acquire a servant, in effect, you become the servant because you have to tend to them much more than they need to tend to you. Moreover, continues the Talmud, when he leaves after six years, after 
the duration of his servitude is concluded, concluded, the verse tells us in Leviticus 25, he should leave from you him and his children. I don't get it, says the Talmud. He's with you. His children are not with you. He's enslaved. His children are not enslaved. So what does it mean? He leaves him and his children. From here, I derive our sages that when you acquire a servant, not only you're responsible for them, you're responsible for their sons and their daughters, even though they don't work for you. Similarly, the verse tells us in Exodus that when he leaves, he leaves with his wife. So if he was married previously, he leaves with his wife. Well, he's enslaved. His wife's not enslaved. So what does it mean he leaves with his wife? His wife was never enslaved. was never enslaved to you. Again, we learn, from this we learn, from this we deduce, that when you acquire a servant, not only you're responsible for their upkeep, their maintenance, their well-being, you're also responsible for their family. And therefore, you have to pay for the the upkeep of their wife and their children, their sons and their daughters, his children. I think this is an amazing idea. When you acquire a servant, we, we started the conversation. You want to buy slaves to whip them, right? So they could pick, pick, pick cotton from your field. That's what we think. But the truth is, the Talmud, the way the Talmud explains it, and the way the laws of the Torah, the, the, the way they codify this is that you're acquiring a master. This is a dedication for the master, for the owner, because you are taking responsibility for this family, and you're saying, I'm going to invest six years to feed them, to tend them, to educate them, to guide them, to redirect them, to bring them back to the, to the, to the proper path. To be a master means that you are committing yourself to rehabilitating one of your Jewish brethren. Now, the Talmud describes the relationship between a master and a slave, or master and a servant, as really the master is the servant, and the slave is the master. But the question that Tosfos asks is as follows. Why is the master called the servant, and the servant called the master? Because you have to feed them, you have to give them the same kind of food that you have, you have to give them the same kind of bread, the same you they eat with you. They're equals. Why, why does it mean, why does it say that when you buy a servant, you really buy yourself a master? It should have said, when you buy a servant, you buy yourself an equal, uh, uh, someone who is a colleague, uh, someone who is equal to you. So the, 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 the Tosos quotes the Talmud in, in the Jerusalem Talmud. It says an astonishing idea. It says, really, he's your master. Because what happens if you only have one pillow? Who gets it? You would think the master gets it. They're the owner. No. The answer is you have to give it to the servant. You have to, and therefore they're even on a higher level than you. They're your master and you're in effect the, the servant. And this is, this is the idea. This is again, not apologetics. This is how the Torah describes it. Someone is a criminal. They need to spend time with a good family. They're going to get rehabilitated and they're treated with respect, with dignity. And even there's laws we'll talk about today. They are they are elevated to a stature. They're they're, they're given certain confidence and self esteem, and they're built up and restored back to being a, a good citizen. Now it's important to stress that, and this is maybe one of the meta themes of the whole concept of 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 servitude and slavery, is that this is not an ideal this is not an ideal situation. The idea of a human being a master over another human, even if it's nominally a master, it's not an ideal situation. 
So for example, I say, just tell us, after someone does their six years of, of servitude for the master, they have the option, if they want, to extend that to 50 years. It's totally optional. But if they do, they have to be pierced in their ear. You got to take them to the doorpost and you got to pierce them in the ear. Very unusual process and ritual and ceremony. So our sages ask the question, why do you pierce them in their ear? And why do you pierce them by the doorpost? There's other ways to maybe symbolize the fact that this person is transitioning from a temporary six-year slave or servant to a more permanent one, voluntarily, of course, but 50-year one. So our sages tell us that the reason why it's the ear is because this ear heard at Sinai not to steal. One of the Ten Commandments, don't steal. And he didn't listen, he went to steal, and therefore he became a servant, and therefore the message is bored into his ear, you didn't take the lesson of Sinai. That's the first answer. But what about if the person sold himself? We, we said there's two Jewish servants. There's a servant who souls, sells himself voluntarily for whatever reason, and there's a servant that is sold by the court because they stole, and they don't have money to pay back. So if someone stole, they don't have money to pay back, it made sense. You bore them in the ear because they didn't listen to the instruction not to steal. But if someone sells themselves, why do they need to be bore in the ear? So again, extends our sages this concept. This ear at Sinai also heard another message. There was one message that they heard not to steal. A second message was the overarching message of Sinai is that the Jewish people are servants of God. This person decided, I want to have a human servant. You didn't get the message of Sinai. You sold yourself as a servant, as a slave of another human. You didn't realize that Sinai God told us that he's our master. He's our sole master. And therefore, the heir gets bored. And similarly, the uh, the Talmud extends this a little further. Why the door? Why the doorpost? What happened with the door? The doorpost, of course, in Egypt, that was with the symbolism. We took the blood and you put it on the doorpost and on the lintel. And God jumped over those houses, God passed over those houses, and therefore, at that time, God acquired us as his servants, we're his servants, we're not servants of other, of other humans, and this person went and bought a human a human master, and therefore, in front of the doorpost and the lintel, where God, so to speak, showed he's our master, the message is bored home to this person that he made a mistake. That's the general overview of the concept of a Jewish servant. And of course, there's also the concept of a Jewish female servant, which is a little bit of a different twist to it. And again, something which, which could be grossly misunderstood. But I think that's a good introduction to that concept. Now, because we're talking about uh, servants and slavery in general, I want to talk about the non-Jewish servant or non-Jewish slave. Because the Jewish servant, it's temporary. It's either six years there's other, other ways that if the owner dies and leaves no male sons, there's other ways that the Jewish servant could, could go free. Whereas a non-Jewish servant, it's a permanent, it's a permanent designation. And that sounds a little bit closer to our concept of, of slavery. And that I think raises the questions that we all have going into the subject. Is there any way for us to understand this? Is this the slavery that we're used to in, uh, in the modern definition? And the answer is definitely a definitive no. So first of all, like this. There is no mitzvah in the Torah to own slaves. It doesn't exist. There's no mitzvah. The Torah does not command us, does not mandate us to own slaves. It doesn't even endorse it. 
it only legislates it. The Torah governs how we have to treat our slaves, both Jewish and non-Jewish. Moreover, not only does the Torah not encourage us to have slaves, it in fact discourages us. It dissuades us from owning slaves. How so? The Mishnah tells us, if you own a lot of slaves, marbe avadim, marbe gezel. If you have the more slaves you have, the more theft you have. Which is the way of the Mishnah encouraging us, it's not a good idea to have too many slaves, too many servants. Moreover, what is the nature of the laws governing a non-Jewish servant? All of them are about protecting and granting certain rights to the non-Jewish servant. So, for example, if the owner strikes the non-Jewish servant and causes a certain kind of injury, there's 24 different kinds of injury that would fall under this category, that servant goes free. Moreover, if a if a Jewish owner strikes a non-Jewish servant or slave and kills them, the owner is liable to be executed as someone who is a murderer. Why? Like we said earlier, someone who's a non-Jewish slave, they're it's only non-Jews, they're only called non-Jewish in uh in uh in quotation marks because really they converted. It's kind of a hybrid status. We'll talk more about that when we get to the subject. But they're in effect Jewish as well, they're obligated to mitzvos etc. And therefore, they're part of the nation, but they have this hybrid status of, they're still called a Canaanite slave, even though really they are Jewish and they are given certain uh, certain rights. And here's the kicker. This is the most important point, I think, of this idea. And I think this is where my friend who asked me if the Torah should outright ban it, this is the answer. He would be a lot happier if the Torah outlawed slavery entirely. Wouldn't be happy, wouldn't we be happier with that? Wouldn't the Torah look more progressive and say, thou shalt not own any slaves of any kind? Wouldn't we all be happier? Look how progressive the Torah was. That's what people think. But let's play this out. Let's just, let's just work this out. Who is this going to benefit? So ostensibly you would think this would benefit the slaves. Yeah, let, let's, let's play this out step by step. We're not allowed to make slaves of any variety. But if you own a non-Jewish slave, you purchase that non-Jewish slave from someone else, from a non-Jewish master. So suppose you have a slave and the slave is owned by a non-Jewish master. What benefits, what rights is he granted? Nothing. That slave is chattel. That slave is property to be deployed at his owner's discretion. For that slave, that poor soul who is suffering under the yoke of the master, the best thing in the world for them would to be to be acquired by a compassionate Jewish master, to be treated like a human being, to be welcomed to be as part of a household. Thus, counterintuitively, the only thing that you gain by the Torah banning slavery is more misery for those poor souls who were enslaved. And therefore, if the Torah forbade the purchase of slaves, it would do harm precisely to the people that my friend wanted to help. And again, the Torah does not encourage us to have it. The, the Torah doesn't say go get as many slaves as you can. There's no mitzvah telling us, instructing us to own slaves. It's only in an environment where slavery exists 
the best thing that could happen for a non-Jewish slave is to be acquired by a Jewish owner. And for us to consider that being denied, that benefit being denied to them, would be very uh, painful for the precise people that we're trying to help. Now, again, no one is suggesting today we should bring it back. No one is even even in antiquity. You know, the Jews were not obsessed with this this culture of of, of slavery. In fact, Talmud tells these great stories about one of the rabbis who owned a slave, and they needed a minion. They only had they only had nine people. They needed a tenth person, and because this slave is kind of a hybrid, they're half Jewish. They, the only thing they need to complete their total conversion is to be released by their master. So they needed a minion. So what did the rabbi do? He released his his servant, and now they had a minion. And there's there's there's, there's many stories that talk about them. We'll talk about them as uh, as we navigate these thirteen mitzvot that relate to servants and slavery. We'll talk about some of these stories. But uh, there's one story where the the master had a had a maid servant, and we learn laws in, in the Talmud. Like the, these these people came from primitive backgrounds. They joined the family of the great sages. They became great people on their own merit. You know, you, you, for example, you know the proto, the, the the archetype of this is, of course, Hagar. You know, Hagar. She's an Egyptian princess, and Pharaoh says, "Go join. I'd rather you be a servant to, to Abraham than be a princess over here." And what happens? She she becomes a great person. She becomes she has communications with with angels, and she's able to be the matriarch of of a great nation. The you know the Ishmaelites. So it worked out well for her. And she has a certain distinction, the story of the Torah. Again, she's communicating with angels. Where, where, where did she get that from? She got that from, from being a servant of Abraham. That's the status that she, that she attained. And again, Pharaoh, her father, was quite right to do that, uh, to upgrade her, so to speak. Making her a servant of Abraham is a higher stature than to be the princess of Egypt. My grandfather used to comment in 1980. He made this comment. He's like, today, you don't imagine that President Reagan would send his daughter to become a, a servant by uh, the home of Rabbi Shach, who was the the, the, the leader of, uh, of of the religious Jewish community in in Israel. Today, you don't imagine it would happen. Then, then maybe Pharaoh was so impressed. He, his point was that the the non Jews of antiquity were more spiritually attuned, and therefore they were they were willing to make sacrifices for their for their children on a material level for them to have. Um, Great spiritual achievements. That's uh, that's the long introduction to this subject. Now, there are 13 different laws related to servants or slaves. I, like, I prefer servants, though there may be at least at least one, maybe more mitzvos that are part of the subject. But the Rambam, when he lists the laws of of servants, he lists 13 different mitzvos. So I want to run through them quickly. Mitzvah number 42 is the general laws of a Jewish slave. Mitzvah number 43 is the marriage of a Jewish female slave. We'll talk about that sometime in the future. 44 is redemption of a female Jewish slave. 45 is restriction against selling a female Jewish slave. 344, 345, and 346 we'll cover today. And those are restrictions against working a Jewish servant in an embarrassing manner. Restriction against selling a Jewish servant in an undignified manner and restriction against working a Jewish servant with hard labor. And then there is Mitzvah 347, which is the laws governing a non-Jewish servant. 348 is preventing a non-Jew from enslaving a Jew with hard labor. Suppose a Jew sells himself to non-Jew. We may have to redeem them. And then 
This is the law of what happens when you release a Jewish servant. You're not allowed to free them empty-handed. So when someone leaves, they leave with a tip, with a bonus. That's 481. 42 is the flip side of that, to give gifts to the Jewish servant on the way out. And then 568 and 569 are the laws of an escaped servant. If someone escapes, uh, a servant escapes from outside of Israel to inside of Israel, you're not, you're not allowed to return them to his master and you're not allowed to oppress them. So those are the laws. And today we're going to cover 42 and 344 through 346. So mitzvah number 42 is the general law of a Jewish servant. And that is found in chapter 21 of Exodus. It's taught in the first chapter of the book of Kedushin. And we're going to go through some of the laws. Of course, it's not a comprehensive list, but the general flavor of the laws. So uh, firstly, there is four different ways that the Sefer HaChinuch, again, that's the book that we're using to navigate through the mitzvos, uh, four different ways that a person can be released. Number one, after six years, it's a, it's a maximum of a six-year term. Number two, if Yovel falls out, Yovel is the jubilee. When the jubilee happens, all the servants go free. Number three is if he buys himself back. So if you're a servant and you're sold for a certain amount of money, let's say it's $100 a year, just to use easy numbers, you sold for six years, $600. You work for three years, you have the option at any time to buy yourself back for the amount of money left over. So if you work for three years, you've paid, so to speak, $300 of your original cost price. You need to pay $300 and you can go free. You could pay it out of your own money. You could have someone else pay it for you, but the owner is mandated to release you if you pay the money that corresponds to how many years are left and you deduct the amount of time that was worked already. Finally, if the master dies and does not leave a male heir, then the servant is automatically freed. Now, a female can own a servant, but it is discouraged because if you have a female master and a male servant, there is a risk of some sort of illicit activity happening, and therefore it was discouraged, even though technically she could own it, but uh, in reality, she is discouraged from owning it because of the potential uh, pitfalls that that could engender. And then there's the law of the nirtza. The nirtza is someone who is ear is bored, they want to live more permanently as part of the family, and they are in servitude for a maximum of 50 years until the next jubilee cycle, <laughs> whenever that happens. Now, there's an interesting question. You know, someone who steals, they get sold as a servant. And they did not listen to the Sinai lesson not to steal. And therefore, when they decide to extend their servitude, they get bored in their ear. So what's the obvious question? Why is someone pierced at the end of their six-year cycle when they stole at the beginning of the six-year cycle, someone steals, right away she pierced them. You don't listen to God, said not to steal, you stole. Why is it only after someone does six years of servitude and then they want to extend it till the oval cycle, why only then are they pierced? You should have listened to God, you should not have stolen. It's an interesting question that many of the commentaries ask. One of the answers is that, you know, part of the, the process or really the, the function of the six-year servitude is to be rehabilitatory. Someone is living a, a criminal lifestyle 
and they need to spend six good years with a nice family, and they'll be restored to being a upstanding citizen. And therefore, that in itself is the remedy. And what happens? The person's there for six years, and it doesn't work. He has not been restored fully because he still wants to be a servant. If someone is healthy, a well-balanced citizen, doesn't want to be a servant. And here we see that he is a servant. And therefore, he still has the the vestiges of the sin, so to speak, of 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 the criminal history is still there. And therefore, now, okay, now where do you report him? That's one of the answers uh, that is that is given. And we see here the Sefer Chinuch tells us that the objective of this is again, it's not avarice to try to make as much money as possible. It's about being helpful to the community, to, to, to be someone who's taking one for the team to restore a person to being a good, moral, upstanding citizen. And he explains that the Almighty chose our nation, and our nation is crowned with all manner of good character, and through that we get God's blessing, and His kindness, and His mercy, is one of God's attributes that we're supposed to emulate. And therefore, we have a servant. We're supposed to emulate that. We're supposed to be kind to this servant. We're supposed to have mercy on uh, upon them. And that's the general theme of this mitzvah. Now, of course, the laws are myriad. And if we, we can't cover them all in one sitting, I want to go through some of them, some of the interesting laws related to a Jewish servant. So, for example, the Rambam tells us that there's five distinctions between a Jewish servant that sold himself arbitrarily and a Jewish servant that was sold compulsory by by the court because they stole. If someone sells themselves, they can only do a maximum of six years. They cannot be bored in their ears. The whole idea, the whole concept of someone being bored is only when they're sold by the court. Moreover, a second distinction is that if someone sells themselves, they cannot marry a non-Jewish female servant when they are in servitude. But if someone is sold by the court, then the master can decide to give them a shivcha kananis, a non-Jewish female servant. Someone who sells themselves can choose who they want to be sold to. They can sell themselves to a non-Jew if they want it. That's their prerogative. Of course, if the non-Jew begins to oppress them, then we're mandated. It's a separate mitzvah. It's one of the 13 mitzvahs here. We're mandated to try to help them, to redeem them, to buy them back, do whatever we can to make sure they're not being oppressed. But if someone is sold by the court, they're only going to be sold to a uh, to a Jew, to someone who is upstanding, who can help rehabilitate them. Someone who sold the uh, sells themselves can be, can sell themselves for six years, for more for less. Someone who's sold by court can only be sold for a maximum of six years. And finally, when someone sells themselves, there is no law that you have to give them gifts when they leave, whereas someone who's sold by the court, there is a law that they have to be given gifts when they leave. Now, there's an interesting and counterintuitive law that states as follows. If you have a Jewish servant who stole and is sold now as a servant for six years to pay back the, the loan and to be rehabilitated, if this servant is married, so they're married previously, so like we said earlier, their wife and their kids are also under the auspices of the master, but only if they're married, only then can their master give them a non-Jewish slave woman to marry as well. 
seems like the opposite of what you would think. But if they're single, if they're unmarried in their regular life, in their criminal life maybe, then the master cannot marry them, cannot wed them to a non-Jewish slave woman for the duration of their six years of servitude. And the obvious question is, well, the opposite should be true. If they're married, well, then they're married already. And therefore, the married, they shouldn't marry again. But if they're unmarried, well, then they're unmarried. And therefore, maybe they should be married for the duration of their six-year servitude. And the answer is that, again, this is not an ideal situation. The concept of a human being subject to another human is unnatural and it's against Torah principles. And it's against Sinai. Sinai, is, we've got the message, we're servants of God, not servants of other humans. And therefore, we don't want someone to be too comfortable. Someone is unmarried. Maybe they don't have exactly social skills. And now they get sold as a slave. They're a criminal. And you know what? There's a nice, uh, comely, Jew- a non-Jewish servant, a slave woman that now he can marry and have kids. This is a very, seems to be like a very cushy arrangement that they could like it very much. And they'll want to stay for another 50 years. Why not? And that's something that the Torah is not desirous of. And therefore, in such a situation, he is not allowed to be uh, hitched up with a non-Jewish slave woman during his duration of his six years of servitude. Uh, so that's mitzvah number 42. I want to quickly run through mitzvah 3, 44, 45, and 46. So number one is um, not to make your Jewish servant work in a undignified or demeaning or embarrassing manner. So for example, the examples the Talmud gives, you don't make him carry your clothing to the bathhouse. You don't make him carry things that are demeaning. You don't make him do work that's demeaning. Demeaning, And this is an extension of the concept, the Shinech tells us, of the idea that when you acquire a servant, it's really a master or at least it's an equal some you have to treat with tremendous respect. And the, the idea is, is that, uh, again, it's a, it's a relationship where you're supposed to guide them. You're supposed to give them empathy. You're supposed to give them love. You're supposed to restore them to good behavior. That's the general theme. And therefore, you have to give them honor. You have to give them respect. You have to give them dignity and certainly not treat them with any cruelty. Similarly, which is a separate mitzvah, but mitzvah number 345 is that if, how you sell a Jewish servant is not the way you sell a regular slave. So, for example, it describes there used to be a platform. You still see this in the movies, right? There's a platform, and you you hawk your uh, your slaves, and and they and, you know they and they look at them and they treat them like 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 cattle. You're not allowed to sell a Jewish servant that way. Because again, you have to give them dignity, you have to give them respect. It's prohibited to sell them as the way you would sell any any other slave. And again, the theme here is this is your brother, this is your brethren. This is something you have to give honor, you have to give respect to, you want to restore them. Yes, they did sins. Yes, they stole, and that's why they have to be sold, but still do it in a dignified way. And who knows, maybe you'll once fall into their situation. You have to kind of empathize with them, think of what they're going through, and uh, and treat them accordingly. And finally, mitzvah number 346 is not to enslave them with hard labor, which means either work that has no end – if there's no time or given amount of of work that's fixed, that's considered hard labor. Because again, the, the person's working there, there's no end in sight. Any work that's no end in sight is prohibited to give to a Jewish servant 
And in addition, any work that is futile or something you don't need, you're not allowed to do it as well. You don't want to have the, the servant get too comfortable. You don't want them to be too idle. And therefore, you want to make them work. So you say, okay, heat up some water for me, but you don't really need the water. That would be a total prohibition to do that to your, to, to your Jewish servant because, again, you have to treat them with respect, with dignity, and you have to empathize with them. Think about that, you know, the fact that this is one of us. This is your, your brother. You're trying to restore them to, to good behavior and you have to treat them with, with the respect and dignity that is befitting someone like that. I want to conclude with a general a theme that maybe is relevant today. Of course, we don't have servants today. We don't have slaves today. But there is a daily prayer that we say, Shalom Asani Avet. We thank God that God did not make us a servant or a slave. And my grandfather, whenever we talk about this, he would stress the fact that even though we're not literal slaves or servants, thank God, but there are aspects of our life and our character that really we are enslaved to certain things. And again, the, me- the meta theme is that we're servants of God, not servants of any other person. But the truth is, we're not only not servants of other people, ideally we should not be servants of any other thing. So for example, in the Talmud, the Talmud describes that there's the, there's the one king and there's the other king. There's the real king, the lofty king, and then there's the pauper king. The lofty king, of course, is God. We're supposed to be servants to the lofty king. But there's the pretender. There's the faux king. There's the imposter king, and that's the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, who wants to be like a king, who wants to enslave us, wants us to be subject to its dominion. But truthfully, it's all a sham. It's all a fraud. And when we say, I'm not a slave to any other thing besides for God, we have to also think about the fact, is there anything or any being or any entity that I'm enslaved to? So for example, if you see those people who have on their refrigerator. Don't talk to me until I have my coffee. I am not a human until then. So in effect, we would say, again, this is not the same idea, but it's it's the same theme. We would say, well, you're enslaved to your coffee. You need it. You're subject to it. You're you're beholden to it. Something like that. It's not a healthy thing because we're beholden only to God. And when someone comes addicted to something else, which is not God, that, again, in, in, a, in a more slight, subtle way, is conflicting with the general theme here that we're servants of God alone. I think the best example of this is the idea of someone driving out and being three minutes away from their house and realizing that they forgot their phone. You feel like you left your arm behind. Right away, you got to turn around. I wonder kind of what what the point is. Like how, how far do you have to be for you not to turn around? That's probably an interesting question. Some people, I'm sure if they get to their office and they're at their seat and they realize that they forgot their phone, they probably would turn around and go back. Even though those people probably would remember that they didn't have their phone on the way because they got their red light and they're check, checking their text messages, messages and they don't find their phone. But it's an interesting question. This idea that maybe, of course, uh, the slavery of your, thankfully, is extinct. But the, the, the concept, the, the, the meta concept of a human being subject and cannot live without being under the spell, under the yoke of some thing still is very much alive and still is a struggle for us and still something we try to Focus on every day when we say, that God did not make me a servant to really examine, are we truly solely servants of God or is there anything else that has our attention, has control over us, has dominion over us that we maybe need to extricate ourselves from?